The sermon you're about to listen to is from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and uh, we're glad, I'm glad that you're here with us. I'm thrilled to be here myself. Uh, thanks for taking part of our gathering and for taking a part of your weekend um, and giving it here uh, to this church family. Uh, you could have been anywhere, uh, and for you to be here, is a, it means a lot to us, and I pray that you're encouraged um, through our time together. Um, it's a joy to ask you to go ahead and turn to the book of Mark if you haven't already done so. Um, it's a good to be back in the gospel of Mark. Uh, we do have some free field journals for you at the back. Um, they're mauve colored ones and there's black colored one. It's the gospel of Mark with the text on one side, note-taking opportunity on the other side. So you can use this as a field journal to kind of jot down observations, questions, pushbacks, that sort of thing. Um, so they're free for you. Go ahead and hop up now. If you don't have one and grab one, you won't be disrupting anything. So go get one. Uh, this is actually my daughter's, Elsie Grace. Um, so I know that because she did something that all of us need to do. Write their name in the front, all right? So if you do get one, write your name in the front so that when or if you forget it, when you forget it here, we will know uh, whose it is. <clears throat> but those are for you. Get a rubber band to go with it so that when you throw it in your book bag or in your front seat, it won't just get destroyed. It'll kind of keep it together, all right? Um, consider the band a picture of the Holy Spirit and your journal is a picture of your life. Kind of holds you together. Um, all right, well, this is week 39 in our study through um, the Gospel of Mark, the book of St. Mark, series that we've entitled Seeing, Believing, and Following the Messiah. Week 39. So it's been a while, it's been nine weeks, I believe, since we've been in this Gospel of Mark because we took a break for the sabbatical and the summer and the Psalm series uh, for six weeks and then three weeks of Fight the Drift and while we're here, and now we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark and we'll continue plowing through the Gospel of St. Mark until we hit Advent um, that's coming up um, obviously around the Christmas season. And then we will break for Advent and then a brief vision series at the beginning of 2023 and then we'll be back into Mark probably 12 or 11, all right? Um, who knows? But um, some context, since it's been a minute, for where we are here in this, uh, con the context of where we are in this passage, in the life of Christ and his disciples, um, Jesus, in just the previous days, um, leading up to our time here, had healed a deaf and a mute man. And then he healed a blind man. And then he, he fed more than 4,000 Gentiles, non-Jews, uh, perceived by the Jews to be their enemies. Gentiles understood the Jews to be their enemies. And yet Jesus being a Jew, a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher, took a couple pieces of fish and some bread and multiplied it miraculously to feed over 4,000 Gentiles, not including men or not including the wives, the ladies and the children. And then he takes, after this, he takes his three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And we know that Jesus had scores of disciples. But he, out of the scores of disciples that he had, he had a select 12 that he called for a particular purpose, to be the apostles that would actually start the Christian church that we're a part of even today. Phenomenal. But out of those 12 men, he also selected three men within the 12 to be sort of his innermost tight-knit circle. And he would take them often into more private places with more private moments, more intimate moments, healing individuals here and there showing them, teaching them something unique, leaving the other nine out for his own purposes and reasons. And these three were Peter, James, and John. 
So he takes Peter, James, and John up on this mountain where he was transfigured. We know it as the transfiguration. You might have heard that. It's where he was literally transfigured and, and he uh, was in dazzling apparel and he was glowing. It was, it was, he was beaming, gleaming. And beside him was Moses and Elijah. And Peter did what we all did. Well, he didn't pass out. We would have probably passed out. Peter actually stayed composed somewhat. And he's like, this is awesome. I'm so glad that we're here. Let me build three tents. I'll build one for Moses, one for Jesus, one for Elijah. And then suddenly they disappear. Jesus comes back down in his form. And we understand that. We know that, uh, <laughs> um, that when Jesus was transfigured, it wasn't that he became something different. He, he actually removed his humanity that he had stepped into when he came to earth and he was being seen by the three disciples as he truly is, as the glorious king of creation in his essence. And so they got a peek into actually who he actually is outside of the human flesh that he stepped into in the likeness of sinful men and women. And so what this does, among other things that they've seen with Jesus is it moves the disciples from thinking that there's something special about this Jesus guy to knowing and believing, man, there really is something special about this guy. And with this, we come to our text and our passage for this week that we looked at nine weeks ago. We covered like the first half of this passage nine weeks ago. And now we're gonna hopefully receive encouragement for sort of a part two of this which is gonna be cool to kind of like land back into Mark, kind of reflecting back on a passage in order to kind of move forward together. So let's look here into this. And I know that y'all have received all sorts of news this week, um, as any given week. Your news feeds are flooded with things. Text messages, people going through stuff, emails, deadlines, assignments, getting a syllabus, trying to figure out what's going on in the semester ahead of us, some health news. We get news all over the place. And what I love about the church gathering together is that for at least an hour a week on a Sunday morning, we get to hear the good news amongst all the other noise and news. And so I pray that you're encouraged. I hope that you're encouraged by hearing the good news of Jesus today. Let's look at the good news from Mark chapter nine, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, all right, context, they, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when they came to the disciples, the other nine disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And, the, and they also saw these scribes arguing and disputing, debating with these nine disciples. So a, a large crowd was gathering and it was made up of these scribes, these religious experts of the Jewish law, as well as these nine disciples. And immediately, verse 15, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, when they saw him, were excited, greatly amazed, excited. They ran up to him and greeted him. So the focus was on this like scuffle, like in the, like in the schoolyard, right? There was this kind of brawl, and it's drawing this crowd, this disputing, debating, drawing a crowd. And they see Jesus, and they all run over to Jesus. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Disciples, why, what are you arguing about with the, with the scribes? Scribes, what are you arguing about with the disciples? I love that he doesn't just kind of like, like subtly drift into this conversation to kind of like learn, listen, but he just steps right into it. We talked about that uh, nine weeks ago, how he just steps right into the mess and he was like, what's going on? Let's do this, right? And then someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I carried my son, uh, Luke chapter nine, parallel account of this same story. 
says it's my only son. I carried, I brought my only son to you, Jesus, because he has an evil spirit. He has a demon that makes him mute. And you know what? Whenever this demon grabs a hold of him and seizes him, it throws him down. It, it, just, it destroys him. It beats him down. He, he, he begins to foam with the mouth and he begins to grind his teeth and he becomes rigid, almost like he's paralyzed. He's frozen. He's stiffened. And so I came to you, you weren't here, so I asked your disciples to cast him out, to make it go away, and they weren't able to. They didn't have the strength to bring the change that my son needed. The spirit takes over this young man and it crushes him. The word is to smash, to beat, to break. I mean, such a difficult life, such a tragic life for the son, but also for the father. It's an awful situation. He's suffering from something like epilepsy, but also being a, a possessed by a demon. This was very intense, very traumatic. The sores, the wounds, the odors, it would have been a very difficult life for the son to live and for the father as he cared for the son. And he was a grown man at this point. We know this because he responds to how long it's been. He says from, from childhood. And so we know that he's no longer in childhood and yet the father's still there with him. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, O faithless, unbelieving, lacking in trust, this, those who don't see me for who I really am, who, who don't believe me for what I can do, how long will I be with you? How long am I to be patient and bear with you and endure with you? Bring him to me. And they carried the boy to him, verse 20, and when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it threw him into a convulsion, it threw him into a fit. And he fell on the ground. Bring him to me. Man, all this chaos begins to happen when he gets close to Jesus. He fell on the ground. Again, this ripping, shredding, tearing, breaking, shouting. He rolls around, begins to foam with the mouth, exactly as, as what had been told would happen. And again, Jesus isn't rattled. He says, bring the son here. And then all of a sudden, as he gets closer to Jesus, it happens again. And Jesus doesn't panic. He doesn't freak out. He doesn't get on, you know, drop to a knee and like begin to like fix it immediately. Instead, he takes time as this is happening and he looks at the daddy and he asks him a question. As all this is going on right here on the ground, how long has this been going on? How long has this been happening to him? From childhood, as long as he can remember. And then he, so he answered the question, but then he gives more. You know, it often casts him into the fire. And then it casts him into the water sometimes too. It's trying to kill him. It's trying to destroy him. But if you can do anything, would you have compassion on us and help us? I mean, Jesus knew how long this has been going on. It's as if Jesus wanted the dad to be able to say it in a way to be able to complain about how hard this has been. He wanted the dad to be able to share with others in the crowd so that they would get perspective that this isn't something new. This has been a burden for a long time. I mean, what a question. How long has it been like this? What an answer. But then what a prayer in verse 22. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, would you have compassion on us and help us? Notice the plural pronoun given here. 
not just help my son, help us. As the caregiver, this is heavy too. This is a lot. Would you help us? He's my son and his struggle is endless. Please, please. And Jesus said to him, if you can do anything, if you, if you can do anything, oh, I can, buddy. I can do all things. All things are possible for the one who believes. Remember, he says, how long am I to be with you, unbelieving generation? Man, anything's possible for the one who believes. And all right, given that being the term, if that's the terms of how this is going to go down, oh, he says in verse 24, he cries out, he shouts out, oh, I believe, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I believe. And then it's like he locks eyes with Jesus. And his zeal, he's convicted because he knows he doesn't believe. Not through and through. I believe, but I believe, I believe. I, 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 would you help my... I don't, I don't, I got doubts, okay? And I don't want my doubts holding my son back from getting something from you. So would you help my unbelief? Would, would, you, would you help me believe more? And he doesn't say, after all this, and I just told you if you would believe that I could help you, get out of here. He doesn't do that. He saw the crowd coming together in verse 25. And he rebukes this unclean spirit. He commands this unclean spirit as the authority over all creation. And he said, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never, never enter him again. Never. And after crying out, screaming, shaking, convulsing, terribly harming the kid once more, the demon comes out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of the people around said, he's dead. This kid is, he's dead. But Jesus gripped him by the hand. He took him by the hand and he lifted him up. He caused him to stand and he arose. Jesus rebukes the demon, he heals the young man, the demon comes out of him, he gives the boy back to the father, all better. And then they entered into this house and the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? What was lacking? You, give, you gave us authority over all things, over demons, over all this, over illness and sickness. Why, why did this not work? How did the formula, how did we get it wrong? And he said to them, this type cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Only through prayer, only through the power of God, not through your words to that demon, not through your touch on that demon, only through your words to God and the power of God at work can this happen. I cannot ever overemphasize, overstate or exaggerate the power of prayer. The power of prayer. Now, several weeks ago, we looked more into detail this passage and discovered encouragement, especially for those who were dealing with long-term pains and, and depressions. Um, or, or for those who are living life with those going through such things. But today in our remaining time, I want to point out what is known as the scarlet thread. Charles Spurgeon referenced the scarlet thread. And that's why I love that bookmarks are read, including the one here in our gatherings text. 
The scarlet thread, he said, he said to find the scarlet thread, that the duty of the pastor is to find the scarlet thread and trace it to the cross. From any passage, find the scarlet thread and trace it to the cross. And so the scarlet thread of the gospel within this passage is found in verses 26 and 27. You see, in the beginning, Adam and Eve did their own thing in their own way, which is sin. It's when we do our own thing in our own way. And it can also be doing God's thing in our own way instead of his way. And the result of that sin is the fall. It's called the fall. It's where mankind was separated from God, only seeing him um, and fearing him and trembling as we see him as the wrathful judge and justifiably so, justifiably so. But the result of the fall is verse 26, the second part of verse 26. The boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. This, now this is very similar to our situation except with one great difference. We weren't like a corpse in our sin and our brokenness and our need. We were a corpse. We were dead. My favorite passage in the Bible tells us this in Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one, and you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the very spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, not me, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We read in Titus just earlier with Pastor Derek. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that's the result of the fall. Now here's the result of the gospel at work through Christ. But Jesus, in verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. This is every Christian's story. And this is what we all need. This is what you need. This is what you need. This is what I need. And we read about this in the following verses in Ephesians chapter two. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Those who are not Christians yet, in this room, listening to this, this is what you need. You need Jesus to come to you, dead to him, and to take you by the hand, lift you up, and raise you to new life in Christ, filling you with his spirit, forgiving your sin, and giving you eyes to see him as the glorious God of all things. Christian, this gospel shadow in our text here must be noticed and appreciated by you in verses 26 and 27. We have to appreciate the gospel, the scarlet threads, lest we drift away from the gospel being cherished and be considered wonderful, wonderful news. So Christians, please hear me. The gospel is not only for unbelievers. The gospel is not only for those who aren't Christians yet. The gospel is for those who believe. This is where our hope must be anchored. This is where our identity must be settled. This is where we draw our value from day in and day out. Do not anchor your faith in your Christian activity. Do not anchor your faith in your religious consistencies. Do not anchor your faith in your church performance. Anchor your faith 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Anchor it deep, settle it. We need this daily in the Old Testament like manna, daily like taking up our crosses that Christ tells us to, daily. Over the past six or seven months of my personal depression, this is the very thing that preserved my life. I was not held together or comforted by my religious performance. That created guilt, that created shame, because I knew I had such a void of that within my heart, within my life. I was drifting, I was discouraged, I was heavy-hearted, I was blinded by the darkness. It was the gospel at work in my mind and my heart through the Holy Spirit's stubborn, faithful, abiding, his abiding, his steadfast love and his faithfulness that kept me, that held me fast. My friend, never lose sight of Calvary. Never lose sight of the empty tomb of Christ. Never move so far from the cross that you're no longer moved by it and fight the drift in assuming this news that you're hearing, assuming the gospel, forgetting the gospel. Friend, this is what saves you. This is what comforts you. This is what identifies you. And this is what sets you free to enjoy life and to look at death fearlessly. And according to Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God to save. In accord with scriptures, Jesus came to earth. He lived, he served, he healed, he preached. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was mutilated, tortured, and he was killed on a cross for your sin. In your place, condemned, he hung. And in your place, condemned, he stood. And three days later, he beat death just like he said he would. And it's in the next text in Mark 9, we're gonna hit it next week, where he tells his disciples over and over, I'm gonna beat death. So he beats death and he, he preaches for 40 more days. And then he ascends back to his heavenly throne where he will return again to us for all who believe. This is the good news that saves our souls. This is the good news that identifies us, that gives us our value and our worth and that continues to comfort us and continues to save our souls. My friend, you never need to outgrow your need for the good news. Never outgrow your need for hearing the gospel. In many ways, you can gauge your Christian maturity and health in, in Christ and the gospel by whether you're moved by the, by the preaching of Jesus Christ, by the singing of Jesus Christ, by reading about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even now in this moment, focusing to try to fight to listen to where it matters to your heart. I mean, a great fear I have for me, a great fear I have for you in preaching the gospel Sunday after Sunday is that you and I will begin to tune it out because we already know it. We'll check out because we've already got this figured out. And when we check out from hearing the gospel and feeding it to our souls and our minds, we'll drift to believing lies about God and lies about ourselves. For instance, that God is going to overlook something in my life, that that's really not a big deal to God. Or we'll drift to believing lies about ourselves that our sin isn't really that big of a deal yet. It, like We need to let it accumulate before we shovel it out of our lives, that this is okay. We can, we can make room and accommodate this instead of repenting of it. Believing lies that, you know what, we're really not that bad in the big picture. Believing lies about ourselves that really, it's those around us that need to be paying attention to this. Believing that they need to hear it more than me. Or thinking about somebody that we can send this to later so that they can get it, so they can finally latch onto this. When really it's us. Yes, they might need to hear it. Yes, we might need to share it. But don't overlook your own need 
for this. Jonah is a beautiful picture, unfortunately, in the Old Testament of someone that can go on and do the things of God without it letting it penetrate his heart, but instead hardening it. I mean, when we begin to check out, we subconsciously drift towards a self-righteousness and a pride, and that is an abomination before God. We'll reduce the Christian life to merely keeping a list or acting good or saying nice things or having our theology so nice and tidy, and we'll be focusing on how to be better than the next guy. But then what happens is we can't be good enough, and maybe we, we don't do good enough to feel good enough, or maybe the guy beside us, the girl beside us knows more, or seems like they have more passion or more sincerity than me, or they show up and serve more Sundays than I do. We begin to feel horrible and sick inside. We're living without joy. We're living without peace. Our identity's in our performance and not in what Christ has done. My friend, I hope you're hearing. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he enter into human history? Why was he betrayed and delivered into the hands of sinful men? Why did he suffer? Why was he beaten? Why did he die? Why did he beat death through his resurrection? Why? Because we were dead in our sins. We did not need to be just improved. We did not need to be updated. We did not need to be restored or remodeled. We didn't need an example to live by. The only way to truly improve a corpse is to give it life, to be made alive. Our corpse doesn't need just makeup. It needs life. It needs Jesus to come and take it by the hand and stop its funeral and make it live. Friend, you and I, were born dead in our sin. We're dead to God. We're dead to knowing him. We're dead to being moved by him. We're dead to being interested in him. Because of our sin, our sin separates us from God. It makes him our enemy, someone to be feared as our foe, someone who's out to get us. Our sin separates us and our sin is ultimately against him and it stands as a great chasm between us and God, separating us from friendship, friendship with him. The very thing that we were created to experience Separating us from friendship with God, the very thing that we're after at the core of all our desires is to be his friend, is to have that chasm brought near, brought the separation, having it reconciled, having him as our friend. We all desire this. And yet without Jesus being sent to us by God, mercifully intervening for us, we would have no hope. We would be unable to bear the wrath of God and his judgment against sin and sinners. But scripture clearly tells us over and over and over again that God sent Jesus into the world so that we would see him, hear him, believe him, receive him, and be saved through him. Him dying was our only hope to be right with God again, to be on the same page with God again. And he knew that he would suffer. He knew that he would die. His death was not an accident. His death was on purpose. He told his followers often, again, it's gonna be next week's text. This did not surprise him. He even looked his betrayer in their eyes and said, Judas, whatever you had to do, go do it quickly. Let's go. Jesus lived perfectly without sin for you. He died on the cross as your substitute in order to love you and forgive you and rescue you from your death. 
in order for you to no longer dread God or fear God, but rather that you would be loved by God and that you would love God. In order that you would no longer fear death, but look forward to life everlasting. He lived perfectly and died as your substitute, receiving the punishment for your sin in order to be able to forgive your sin, to kill your death, stop your funeral, bring you back to life, and bring you back into that friendship and relationship with God. He died and he beat death and destroyed its hold on us through his resurrection. And to those who believe this, those Christians in the room, you too will beat death and experience resurrection unto life. Jesus Christ absorbed the very cup of wrath that was due to us for our sin, our rebellion. All of that was poured out on his innocent son in our place. First John 4 tells us this and more. In this, the love of God was known by us, made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live and live through him. And this is love, not so much that we've loved God, but God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the wrath absorber, the wrath sponge, the responsibility taker, the one who owned it in our place for us. Friend, the cross is what we all deserve, yet Jesus endured all of this for us. All of us who would simply believe in him and hope in him. He endured the wrath of God, the storm of God's wrath. He endured all the punishment, all the wrath, every bit of it. And his wrath is now finished because Jesus took all of it. All of it. Our only hope was that we would have a substitute to take our place. Otherwise, we bear the responsibility ourselves. But it had to be a perfect substitute a spotless lamb, as in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And there's Jesus. And at that judgment on the cross, it's there that he was made our sin and we became his righteousness, what Christians and theologians consider to be the great exchange. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, among other passages, tells about this great exchange. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Christ Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We might become fit for heaven, fit for that relationship with God. It was on the cross that God the Father looked at Jesus as if he were us, as if he were you. On the cross, he's looking at Jesus as if he were you. And he judges Jesus for your sin. He judges Jesus for your rebellion. And for those who believe Jesus to be their, their, their savior, their Lord, God now looks at you today and rewards you as if you had lived the life of Christ Jesus, the life of perfection and sinlessness perfectly and always. This is our justification, just as if you've never sinned and just as if you always obeyed, just as if you always, just as if you've never sinned. This is our sin that we committed is paid for by Jesus through his substitutionary atonement. Our sin applied to Jesus. But then it's also just as if we've always obeyed. This is where our, like Jesus's righteousness is applied to us. The perfect life of Christ as our representative is now our life. He took us, we took him. He was judged as us and we're now looked upon by God as if we're Jesus. And for those who believe and hope in Christ Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see your sin. He saw that and judged that on the cross 2,000 years ago. He now sees Jesus. In other words, how this plays out today in your life, today, when God looks at you today in this room right now, he sees you as good as Jesus ever was. 
He sees you as holy as Jesus ever was, as righteous as Jesus ever was, as sinless as Jesus ever was right now today. And for those who believe and trust and hope in Christ, we have to believe that the wrath has already been taken by Christ, that it's finished. And indeed, Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation, no judgment, no wrath reserved for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if this is true, and I believe it is, how do we respond to the gospel of Christ? One, for my friends who aren't Christians in the room, you believe this. You just give yourself to it. You just give yourself to it. You pray for forgiveness of your sins. You pray for faith in Christ. Ask God to make you a Christian. Ask him to make you one with Christ. To give you peace in this life, peace in the life to come, to settle it, to make things right. God, will you make things right between me and you because of what Jesus did? Will you do this? Will you make this matter to my heart, my life? Will you make me a Christian? Would you make me live and live through you and for you? This is how we should respond. And for my friends who are Christians in the room, I recommend that we understand our drifting towards disbelief. Our drifting towards disbelief, to unbelief, to not believing fully. Be aware of how we each drift towards doubt and disbelief, sort of a gospel amnesia. It's like we believe it now, we think it now, we're all over it now, we're writing things down right now, but in 20 minutes, our kid embarrasses us. Instantly, we base our identity on what somebody thinks about me and how I parent instead of what Christ has done for me. So now I end up punishing my kid because I'm trying to produce moral behavior in front of another adult out of being judged as an unruly parent instead of properly handling the situation with my child, being fully convinced of my right standing before God and my identity and value and worth is not what you think, but it's what he thinks. So now I can freely engage my child with grace, mercy, and appropriate toughness, but not lacking tenderness. It's amazing how quickly we can drift from understanding what Christ has done for us. We drift towards believing that the main issue is something other than our sin and Jesus. We drift towards thinking that, that uh, through our own education, our theology, our skill, our resources, and passion, that that's enough. We drift quickly there. You see, when we sin, it's ultimately an issue of our heart not believing something about the gospel. We're doubting something somewhere. So be careful. Beware of this drift. We'll drift to a thousand things in a moment. So know the drift. So respond. If you're not a Christian yet, become a Christian today. Ask God to remove the yet from that about you. And two, know of our drifting towards disbelief. Three, apply the gospel to your disbelief. You know, the disciples, their faith and their hope and their confidence wasn't found within themselves trying to heal this boy. It's not in trying harder that's going to help the oppressed or possessed. The problem isn't by looking within. Our problem is solved by looking at the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's what the disciples did. It's gazing at the finished work of Jesus. This is where our faith can move forward. You're going to only get out of the rut and the darkness that you're in by applying gospel medicine to your discouraged, unbelieving heart. My friend, gaze at the cross. Gaze at the empty tomb. This is how we plow through disbelief and despair. He didn't say try harder. He said, believe me. I mean, applying the gospel truth to our unbelief is telling our hearts 
who we are right now as a result of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's fighting to believe and trust in, in us being who Jesus has made us through his work. And it's learning to live from that identity that he's already earned for us. And then fourth, pray for faith. All of us, ask God for faith. Cry out to him just like the daddy did. I believe, help my unbelief. Man, daily disposition. We wake up, I believe, help my unbelief. I woke up a Christian today. That's all you, God. That's wild. I believe, I believe that. But help my unbelief throughout today. And if you set your alarm at six, at 6.05, do it again. At 6.05 and 30 seconds, do it again. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And begin to see Jesus as the one who all demons tremble before. Demons can't chill in his presence. They tremble, they run. My friend, that's the real Jesus. That's the one who saved you. That's the one who's abiding with you. He's bold, he's courageous. And every demon that's ever been trembles and runs from him, pleads for mercy. That's our Jesus. And hear him commanding, picture him doing this. I command you, come out of him, come out of her, and never enter her again. See that as your Jesus. And even though you might feel like the demons are getting the best of you, even though perhaps you might feel like they've won and the darkness is getting the most of you, the fear, the addiction, the sickness, the illness, the anxiety, the depression, the guilt, the suffering, the anger, the rage, the bitterness, the apathy, the regret, that it's getting the best of you and it's taking a toll, Man, after the demon cried out and convulsed terribly, the demon came out and Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Friend, that's what your dark season needs. You need to be delivered to the father. You need to see the father. You need to see what the son has done for you. Pray for faith in Jesus. Pray for faith that Jesus is victorious over all things, even what it is that you're facing today. And pray for faith that he cares, that he cares deeply about you about what you're going through, about your dark season, even about your faithlessness and your apathy and your indifference to this book. Tell him that and ask for faith. Pray to him, asking him to help you in this disbelief and to respond to your need. Ask him to pray. Pray, asking him for deliverance. Asking him for faith in the fact that he can save you. Say, I believe you can help me, but I doubt you can help me. Would you help my doubts? putting it all out there. Trust him. You're not gonna run him off. Your honesty is not going to intimidate him or cause him not to be drawn to you. Your honesty, your raw honesty in your need, unbelief, your indifference, your apathy, your anger towards him for not showing up when he should have, according to you and me. Putting it all out there. He's drawn to that like a super magnet. Put it all out there. He will be with you and he will help you. He's a merciful savior. There's one time in scripture where he describes himself as a person. He says, I'm gentle and lowly. And that is towards you. And yet that very Jesus, the demons run from in fear. And it's that gentle and lowly that chases demons away that invites you to come and experience his tenderness and his gentleness. Friends, you can say anything to this man. You can ask anything of him. Would you do it?
The boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. May this happen to all of us in this room. And may all of us never forget that this has happened to us. Let's remember that this has happened to us, that this is our story and our testimony, that he's taken us by the hand and he's raised us up. Let's remember how that happened by celebrating the work of Christ through communion together this morning. Together, let's remember the finished work of Jesus that includes taking us by the hand and giving us life. He has healed us through his suffering. He's given us back to the Father through his death and resurrection and ascension and his return. He gives us life. He reconciles us back to God through his death and his life once more. And this is what we remember now as we take bread, which is symbolic of the life and body of Christ. So when you take bread, think representative. He lived for me, as me. And you're going to dip it into the juice or the wine, and that red liquid symbolic of the death of Christ and the blood that he shed that covers your sins, forgives your sins, atones for your sins. This is his substitutionary work on your behalf. So you grab the bread, which is symbolic of his body, dip into the juice and wine, symbolic of his death. And so as you take and dip and taste, remind yourself of the truth of the gospel and your need for it. Remind yourself of what Christ has done. Christian, this is for you, for all those who believe. No matter how clumsy, no matter how clumsy, this is for you. Those who are struggling, this is for you. Don't think for a second that what you did this week disqualifies you from laying hold of what Christ has done for you. In doing so, you're gonna be basing it on your performance. We come and take hold of this by faith and the performance of Jesus Christ, trusting his forgiveness of his work for us. So friend, lift your eyes to the skies. He's for us and he's returning to take us. And he loves you deeply and he knows what you're going through. Look to him. Let's pray together. <laughs> These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen, and he's coming again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of remembering the work of Christ, on this time of communion, And triune God, would you remain with us always, even through the end of the age. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.